My major pain has, has been invisible. The mobility aid makes it better. It gives me freedom. It can get to the core beliefs we have about ourselves. Don't ever think you're alone. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Simon about chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis. Simon will tell us about living through five years of hell that he calls a slow erosion of everything he considered himself to be. But then he found one single medication that he started taking and started getting better. He called it his silver bullet for chronic fatigue syndrome. And after five years of slowly improving, he found himself completely recovered. So he'll talk us through this 10-year process with chronic fatigue syndrome today. I know there's a possibility that maybe you found this podcast because you yourself have chronic fatigue syndrome and you are searching for something to try. So I am not going to bury the lead here. I'm not trying to clickbait you and, you know, lead you down some dark alley. Uh, I'll tell you right up front that the name of the medication that Simon tried is low-dose naltrexone or LDN. He microdosed this medication at a dosage of one milligram per day, and he'll talk us through figuring out what dosage to take. And of course, I have to couch that by saying that neither Simon or myself are medical professionals, and neither of us are in a position to give medical advice. So something that I'm excited about as the host of this podcast is sharing information with you based off of other people's real-life experiences of something that worked for them that you might be able to try. And this episode features the most tangible uh, you know, direct line to something like that that I think we've ever featured on the podcast, which is that this man had debilitating, disabling chronic fatigue syndrome, found one medication, LDN, low-dose naltrexone, at a microdose and started to get better and is now completely recovered. So that's the TLDR, you know, if you don't want to, I guess it's a TLDL in the case of a podcast. Simon also makes it very clear that he knows other people with chronic fatigue syndrome. He did a ton of research, got deep into the message boards on Reddit, and that's actually how he found this, uh, this treatment to try. But he mentions knowing other people with chronic fatigue syndrome for whom LDN did not work. So we're not saying that this is a silver bullet for chronic fatigue syndrome for everyone in the world. Absolutely not what we're trying to say at all. This was the silver bullet for Simon. If this is something that you have never tried, here's a story. Here's something to take to your doctor, a recommendation from someone for whom it worked. If this is something you've heard of and you've tried it yourself, I don't want to lead you down the blind alley of listening to an hour and a half long discussion about something you already knew. So I feel like, you know, let's spoil the surprise and give you the spoilers up front about what this silver bullet is. But if this is something you're unfamiliar with, like me, I was unfamiliar with this. This podcast is a sensational hour and a half of listening. I was absolutely riveted to Simon's story. The way that he described going through the hard parts of CFS was so striking. I, as someone with a chronic mystery illness who has spent a lot of time on the couch, unable to function, I related so much to the way that Simon described that happening to him. And then hearing the story of someone who actually found an answer and got better is sensational. So, Wow, it's such a good podcast. I'm thrilled to be able to share it with you. So grateful to Simon for coming on the show. We're going to get to that in just a couple minutes. This discussion is very raw at times, very unfiltered, and not, not in the sense of, you know, foul language or anything like that, but just about the reality of living with, you know, such a horrific disease. And there is discussion of suicidal ideation in this episode. So I wanted to let you know that up front and to provide you with a resource just in case you are struggling. 
the U.S. government has created a brand new national suicide prevention hotline, a phone number you can call. It is 988. So if you are in distress, if you are in a moment of crisis and you need someone to talk to, 988 is the number to call here in the United States. Simon will talk in this episode about feeling like his life was over, like he was never going to get better, that this disease had stripped away everything that made him him and everything that he had to live for. Uh, But then he talks about getting better, finding the answer, and being so grateful that he hung in there. So it's a really, like I said, really incredible story. But whenever we cover topics that go to these dark places... I always like to tell you up front that there is an option if you need someone to speak with and remind you of the National Suicide Lifeline at 988. I also want to address the fact that, yes, we did just do a three-part special deep dive on chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis, but this story is so important, it just has to be shared. So, we're going back to CFSME. I do try to keep things fresh and rotating through different diseases, finding new diseases to cover, speaking with people with disabilities that we have not yet talked about on the show. That's important to me. But, you know, I don't shy away from repeating topics that we have covered in the past because everyone's journey is different. And this one was just so sensational. I had to share it with you. No other choice. So we're going back to CFS ME in this week's episode. If you are enjoying the Major Pain Podcast and you would like to support the show, we would love to have your support. One of the best ways to do so is to sign up for monthly financial support on Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. There are three tiers of support ranging from $2 per month to $25 per month. Each tier comes with different recognition and gifts, and all tiers come with bonus content. My partner Andy and I sit down once a month to chat. We just put out the episode for the month of November. I've already gotten some great feedback for that episode, so thank you to those of you in the Patreon community who have listened and reached out. And of course, extra special thank you to our Patreon producers supporting the show at the highest tier of $25 per month. Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Your continued support is so incredibly appreciated. Another great way to support this show is by leaving us a positive rating and review on the platform on which you listen. I just saw today that we have reached 14 five-star ratings on Spotify, which is so exciting. Thank you all so much. And we have recently hit our 30th rating on Apple Podcasts, which I am still thrilled about. Each week, I post a clip of the podcast on TikTok, and last week's episode with Kenneth really struck a chord. I posted a clip where he was talking about his doctor accusing him of being a drug addict, and there's been a really amazing conversation happening over on TikTok around that clip. So if you'd like to check it out, you can find us on TikTok and on Instagram at Major Pain Podcast, and we are also using Twitter at Major Pain Pod. Another great way to support the show as well as the chronic illness community is to sign up to participate in research studies and surveys through Rare Patient Voice. If you have a diagnosis of any kind, it does not matter if it is a rare disease or a common diagnosis, you can sign up on Rare Patient Voice to be notified when research studies and surveys are available. And if you participate in a survey or a study, you'll be paid for your time, an average of $100 per hour. And I've been getting great feedback from people who have participated this and gotten paid. If you sign up using our link, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast, you will also be supporting the show while you sign up. 
I love hearing from listeners about their thoughts on our episodes. You can always reach out by sending me an email, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com, or leaving a comment on any episode of the podcast on our website, majorpainpodcast.com. I'm so curious if there are other people in the chronic fatigue syndrome community that have any experience with LDN, low-dose naltrexone. And I'm also always curious if people have questions for our guests. You can always run them by me through the email address. I will forward them on to our guests and see if we can get a response. Thank you again for spending your time listening to this podcast. I'm so proud of what we are building here at Major Pain. You are a huge part of it if you are listening to the show. So thank you for engaging with these stories. We have a great one for you today. I'll remind you one more time that my guests and I are not medical professionals. Please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our episode with Simon about finding his silver bullet for chronic fatigue syndrome. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is going to be great. So we have a mutual friend in common who has been on the podcast, my friend Zach, who was on uh, several episodes back talking about living through uh, kidney failure and a kidney transplant. Um, And he mentioned during the episode that he has a friend who's lived through some CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, and it's you and we're here. We get to chat. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Big fan of Zach Gandra. Uh, If you're out there, buddy, I just love you. Yeah, he's the best. And this is like a this is like a spinoff episode of that other podcast. <laughs> this one, this one has been teased a little foreshadowed. Good. Um, Good. Yeah. So, Simon, let's get to know you a little bit. Why don't you tell us about yourself? Sure. Um, I am. Uh, I live in West Michigan. Um, I it's it's hard for me to introduce myself without immediately jumping into CFS because it's been like mm. such a complete monster of a of a thing that def- has defined my life. Wow. But yeah, at this period, I would say that I um, have a lot of hobbies that I busy myself with. Um, I got married uh, three years ago, and we had a child in 2019. So that keeps me pretty busy these mm. days. Um, but I, yeah, I, I'm a, um, I, I right now I'm trying to learn how to restore antique tobacco pipes. So I have some weird kind of Whoa. stuff that I do. Uh, but in general, um, yeah, my, my main thing that I takes up my time is I, uh, research, um, existential philosophy and theologies. Um, so, uh, and, uh, spend a lot of time reading old books. So that's wow. Fascinating. So cool. How did you get into restoring old tobacco pipes? That's a, that's a pastime I've never even heard of. Yeah. I mean, so it's a couple of different reasons. One is that my, my brain is, um, very, so if you ever do the Myers-Briggs, um, if you know what that is, the 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 personality test, NTP, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think it's actually, I I personally prefer it to the Enneagram, but I like both the Enneagram and the Myers-Briggs. Um, I feel that, uh, so on the, on the Myers-Briggs, um, there's a scale called S and N. So, um, S is sensing and N is intuition. Um, this basically talks about like how much of a detail or big picture person you are sort of. And so on that scale, I'm like 95% and I'm like almost disabled S like I'm, I'm like, I have no sense of detail in anything, which is cool when it comes to existential philosophy and big, huge macro concepts. Um, but it's terrible when it comes to being detailed and paying attention. And so in a lot of ways, um, tobacco pipe, 
um, restoration is a way for me to exercise a part of my brain that's like puny mm. and very stunted. Um, so that I, I, I started getting into smoking tobacco pipes and then, um, I was buying them and I bought one. It was kind of funky and it was like, oh, this is, how do I restore this? And then I, I like, it was like a deep dive into what the internet is, you know, for all the things there's that, um, Bo Burnham song about how all the inner things, the internet is bad at. I don't know if you've heard that, <laughs> um, but this is one of the things the internet is good at is like weird side hobbies like right like so like learning klingon or stuff like that <laughs> um, and so yeah there's actually a huge movement on the internet of how to people restoring old pipes um how to restore them in a way that pr um, preserves their character there's a, a japanese movement on pipe restoration kind of a side school where it's about restoring it in a way that actually creates something new rather than kind of trying to preserve something old so for instance if you have a pipe with a big crack in it to fill that crack with liquid silver mm. and then you have weird kind of silver vein in a pipe and then it's kind of a new that's the japanese method of of kind of like there's you know um now it's actually it's more beautiful than it was before kind of thing yeah interesting there's a whole bunch of different stuff but yeah i, I started getting into that and then i got really into this uh um uh swedish pipe brand in particular because they're these giant like weird gnarled um I don't know if you're, you know, you want to talk about this on your podcast, but <laughs> like I, I could keep going. Like um, the, the the a pipe itself is the result of 65 years of growth at the root of a bush, and then that giant bulb of root is shaven down and made into a single pipe, and that's why a pipe is so good at being smoked because the density of this bush root is so hard that you're it's hard to light it on fire. And so your pipe lasts a long time. You can literally burn embers inside of wood and the wood doesn't really combust because it's this dense burl root thing. So, um, yeah. And then there's that gets into, um, shaping that root. And then there's all these different styles. There's traditional styles such as the, uh, um, um, the Dublin, um, the Rhodesian is another one. Um, but then there's these kind of Swedish and Nordic whole creations where they kind of throw out the textbook and they create these giant kind of weird you know almost almost fictional looking pipes and uh they they have all this beautiful flame to them and the way that they are stained and, and wow it's it's but. so cool hearing someone talk about their passion something that i know nothing about i mean <laughs> that's a crash yeah. course on pipes that i never knew i was gonna get <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's awesome well and you can relate it to cfs because cfs for me was a highly um immobilizing condition mm. So yeah, having a hobby that was stationary was actually pretty cool. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, let's get into that. So, Simon, sure. what is your major pain? My major pain is CFS um, ME, uh, otherwise known as chronic fix, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, a myalgic encephalomyelitis. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, we we did a. You know, I have the illness because I can pronounce exactly. ME, so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I I learned how to say it recently when we did a like a three part deep dive on yep. myalgic encephalomyelitis. Um, yep. But yeah, everyone's story is so unique and so different, and I'm really curious to hear yours. Uh, so when when did this start for you? How old were you? So I was. That would have been 2012. Um, I was dating uh, a lovely young woman, um, and she said, "Don't kiss me, don't kiss me. I have mono." And I was like, you know what? It's fine, right? I'm, I mean, if I get mono, I'm going to be like a little tired for what a couple months and I'll just be fine. It's not a big deal. And so 
I did. I, and so then let's see 2012. I mean, that would be 10 years ago. And wow. so um, I got mono from her as expected. Um, and then six, seven, eight months later, I was, I was going, man, I'm still, still tired. What's up with this? I thought mono is only supposed to last a couple months. So I go to, um, the doctor on 15th Avenue at what was then, I think group health, um, uh, which is now I think called something else yeah, um, in Seattle, I'm assuming in Seattle, up there on 15th Avenue. Um, and, uh, the doctor says, oh, you have, he like kind of left the room and then he came back and he says, um, you have chronic fatigue syndrome. And I said, I've never heard of that. What is, what is that? Um, which is actually, if it's kind of cool because, well, obviously it's not, it's like the worst thing that's ever happened to me, but <laughs> it's kind of cool in the sense that, um, uh, a lot of people in the CFS world really struggle to get a diagnosis yeah. because a lot of doctors do not believe that this is a real thing. Yeah. But I was fortunate enough, maybe because it's Seattle, this, you know, educated, enlightened city or something. But I, I had a doctor who immediately said, boom, you have, you have a thing called CFS, but he said, don't worry about it, Simon. You know, you're going to get, you're young, you know, you're 30 years old. Everything's actually at that time I was, yeah, I had just turned 30. I was, um, and so he said, you're young. This is not going to be a big deal. And of course he was, uh, um, he was wrong. Hmm. So it, it was an extremely big deal. And, um, so, yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting that you can pinpoint the moment when you contracted this disease. Yep. I mean, it, yep. se it seems like you're someone who has a passion for, for life and for, you know, you know, oh, thank you. you. You love, you love tobacco. You want to kiss this girl. Um, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. it's, I, I totally can relate to this, uh, this instinct to do what feels good in the now. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so you have this moment where you do what feels good in the now you, yep. and, and then it changes your life completely forever. Looking back on that moment, how do you feel about that moment? Oh, you know, that is a great question. You got some good, you got some good instinct. Um, I, I think in a lot of ways I have thought about that. Like I want to, I want to go back, you know, of course we can't do this but there's, there's a, there's okay. There's a prevailing kind of thought that says like, never feel bad about anything you've done. Cause it's brought you where you are today. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Like I, obviously I'm, I have grown tremendously through CFS and I'm so grateful for the lessons that I've learned. And, um, but I would not wish this illness upon myself. I, it was, it was the worst, most terrible thing that's ever happened to me. It's harder than uh, my marriage. It's harder than any job I've had. It's harder than any school I've gone through. Anytime that we have trouble with our child or in our marriage, whatever, in the back of my head, I'm like, this is still easier than CFS. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I wish, yeah, in many ways, I wish I could, I, I remember that moment. I can actually visualize it in my head and I wish I could, you know, be in the corner of the room or be a voice in my head and just be like, Simon, you don't realize the domino effect of what's going to happen here because hiding behind this virus that's inside it of this uh girlfriend of yours um is a um a a, a syndrome which is um men, a lot of people as you might know cfs is caused or triggered by a viral infection as it uh, probably long-haul covid is probably you know kind of um uh, the same thing it's kind of this post-viral um, syndrome. Yeah. And so I had no idea that this, you know, it's like a, it's like a bomb was in the wings and I did not even, I had, I was blind and, um, I just thought, you know, you're exactly right. It was, it was, uh, it was a, a passionate 
movement of wanting to draw close to this person I liked. Um, and, uh, um, and it was, you know, but I, I, there's no way to have avoided it. There's because there's no way to, to be that voice in the corner of the room. You just had to go through it. So, yeah. And so many people will get mono and yeah. not get CFS. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, <laughs> I had no idea. So yeah, it's like a weird luck of the draw thing where it's, you know, I, I've learned a bit recently about the research that's happening around this. Long yep. COVID has really kickstarted the research around this. Like, yeah. is there a blood marker of some yeah. kind that can warn us if someone is susceptible to this type of post-viral right. illness? But, you know, 10 years ago, not, none of that was happening. None of that research yep. was happening. Um, yep. Well, and if it was, you know, it was very minimal compared to the extreme effect that this has been having on people forever <laughs> as long as viruses have been around this has been happening i'm assuming um yep. yeah so like back then we don't know that much you don't know that you are susceptible to this thing and it's impossible yep. to it's impossible to use future knowledge to make past decisions yep. which is so yep. frustrating <laughs> so frustrating but life life is a uh, life is full of of uh of um pain and uh and so that's just a reality to, to that has to be navigated you know yeah and so. it's it is pain is unavoidable and how you yep. manage it is yep. the challenge that's right so what did this look like for you when when uh chronic fatigue syndrome kicks into full gear Oof. yeah so i uh thankfully i've i had gone through because of a bad breakup um back um three years earlier i had gone through a lot of psychotherapy um with a wonderful therapist uh uh there in seattle and uh she had taught me a lot of the tools that i had to navigate grief and i'm so glad that that happened because what was coming was certainly um uh, uh a a catalyst for suicide in a lot of people and I had thankfully some tools from from this therapeutic intervention I had had earlier, um, which helped. These are all, by the way, these are not determinative. These are all coordinating, right? So there's not a. I would never say like somebody who um, who does end up taking their life, they should have just had therapy or these mm -hmm. kind of you know, black and white statements. But I'm saying that that was a tool that that gave me that increased the odds of me um, surviving the giant shit storm that was coming my way and so um basically in 2012 um i was tired i was like huh i kind of have to lay down once in a while once per week 2013 um i slowly lost the ability to uh work full-time and i had to work part-time um by 2014 i could no longer work part-time and i had trouble hanging out with friends and by 2015, I lost the ability to leave my home and I uh, um, was in a bed or on a couch um, for uh, two and a half years after that. And so um, I, uh, it was like a slow erosion of everything I considered myself to be because, you know, existentially we are, um, we are, we are substantiated people so we 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 like to think that well not we um but sometimes people like to consider that their identities are held within their heads but they really are not like in a lot of ways what makes us who we are is the way that we live and involve ourselves in the real world so if i have a relationship or i have a job 
or I have um, these sort of things to have those things severed when I have no relationships, no occupations, you know, you can kind of hear the existential philosophy maybe coming out here, but like um, when I have no ability to involve myself in real and concrete ways in the world, um, it causes a uh, extreme um, uh, form of uh, dread and anxiety um, and it causes um, extreme uh, mental stress. I mean, this is one of the ways that, you know, the U.S. government kind of breaks prisoners down in Guantanamo Bay is sensory deprivation. And in a lot of ways, uh, becoming um, uh, becoming um, uh, deprived ourselves of sensory experience through becoming severely disabled has a similarly mentally exhausting and uh, deteriorating effect. So that's that's what happened to me. I have this memory um, when I hit rec- rock bottom. Um, I have two kind of rock bottoms. I have the the moment where I realized that I was um, potentially going to die. That was in the fall of 2015. Um, I was in my Capitol Hill apartment and I um, was so tired that I had to be in a dark room with all the windows blacked out because I could not stand sunlight. In fact, my eyes were so um i would become so fatigued by the the slight presence of light um that i i had to i was i was hungry because i had no ability to feed myself and so i had to, i was texting my friend uh jamie to ask her if she would um bring me some like a, a an asian salad from trader trader joe's i can still remember the salad but I asked her, I said, you know, can you bring me a salad from Trader Joe's? But in order to, a- to ask somebody to help give me some food, I had to pull out my phone. And I was, the screen was so intense and painful for me to look at that I was wearing sunglasses in the dark. Mm-hmm. So I was, um, I have this image of me. This is probably my one out of two rock bottom experiences. I have this image of me where I am in a darkened room. All the windows are covered. I'm in a bed, laid out, and I'm so tired. I can only look at my phone on its lowest brightness setting with a pair of sunglasses on my face. And I need to do that because I'm so hungry because I can't feed myself. And that's when I realized I was like, um, it's time to prepare to die. So um, because I'd read in uh, the papers like about, for instance, um, uh, I think his name is... uh, uh, Oh gosh, what's this guy's name? Um, anyway, there's there's a bunch of CFS people who um, are they live in darkened rooms full time. They're fed through their stomach through a tube. Um, they can are too sick to be talked to or touched. Um, they all their energy gives them is once per month is t- for somebody to go in there and, and just shave their head so they can have a haircut um, with like a very quiet pair of buzzing clippers. But in general, like they live in a kind of a living dead state, and so I could see myself. I mean, I had been sick for about two years and I was spinning towards that state. And so I said to myself, like, this is, this is what it looks like to die. And so, um, yeah, it was a pretty, it was a pretty amazing experience in a sense of, uh, um, not in the sense of it being good, amazing, but it's sense it being really, uh, quite extraordinary, extraordinary. It was a non-ordinary experience. It was almost like being on drugs or something, except it was way more clear um, I, I, uh, um, like the walls felt very, uh, had a texture all of a sudden and the, the window panes had a certain texture to themselves and my clothing had a certain texture. It was a very surreal, 
um, experience where I just realized kind of the thinness of life. And I realized the extreme precariousness through which we live. And, um, uh, and I realized I was going to die. And so I, I thought there was a good chance I was going to die. And so, yeah, I, I arranged for a friend to come over and he signed my will and testimony and my power of attorney so that I, you know, could be, um, you know, they could pull life support if I was not responsive and this sort of stuff. And I, um, I packed up all my stuff and I moved back to, uh, um, my hometown or my home. Yeah. My hometown of Grand Rapids. And I, um, moved into an apartment and I, I got somebody to cook food for me and clean. And I just laid down permanently and I assumed to either die or recover. Um, and thankfully, you know, I, I, I have recovered since then, but, um, that was another terrible experience because I sat there in Grand Rapids then for a year without any improvement. And so, um, and that's when I started to text my loved ones saying, um, I think I want to, I think I want to die, you know? Um, I, I wasn't asking them yet to kill me or end my life, but I was for the first time voicing that my experience was so miserable after, you know, I was sick 2000 now, half of 2012, 13, 14, 15, and it was progressively getting worse. So when you're looking down the barrel of a gun of three years now of deteriorating condition, there's not a lot of hope that there's any sort of positive outcome coming from this. And so um, at that point, I was so tired that I couldn't, it was actually exhausting to breathe and to use my lungs. And so it was sort of basically like being slowly tortured. On, on top of that, my quality of life had been reduced to um, a sliver. Uh, I, every night, ate dinner alone, every every day, ate meals alone. Um, maybe if the, the woman who cooked my food, she would be around me cleaning up or whatever, but at night, and I would lay in in the dark every night by myself and um, as you maybe might know, and as a lot of people with chronic illnesses can resonate with, when you first get a serious illness like this, um, it's a huge shock to your social circle. And a lot of your friends are not in a space to contain this or handle this. Mm -hmm. And so they themselves, I had, I would say 80% of my community themselves sort of backed away from me because they don't have for in their own lives are sort of on fire, a lot of people. And so they don't have themselves the resources to deal with your condition. So on top of being isolated in the dark and miserable, your social circle has in general, not totally, some notable people stepped up, but I would say that the majority of my social circle were unequipped or unable to, uh, to really care for me. And so on top of that, it was just socially isolating. And so, yeah, it was, it was, uh, that was, that would say that that was really was rock bottom was, um, the, uh, um, end of 2016, I was still in a bed on a couch every day and, uh, um, and I had not improved. And I, at, by this point started to voice out loud that I wish I had, I was, I was dead. So. Wow. That was an incredibly visceral telling of living through that. I mean, I felt that as you were talking about it and I, I've, I have enough experience being chronically ill and being on the couch to, to relate to a lot of what you were talking yeah. about. And, you know, it's so interesting. I got, I'm thinking back on my time where I couldn't go out. I couldn't have a social life. Um, yeah. I was just in bed all day. Um, and I spent a lot of that time playing video games where I had this, mm -hmm. you know, Nintendo switch in my hands and this bright screen in my face. Yeah. And yeah. if yeah. I, I've, I have not really had that. I've had that problem a couple of times where I can't look into a bright screen, mm. but almost never, you know, like that's on a really, really bad day. That's when we turn the screens off, put a podcast on, 
that's like how I kind of try to get through the, those moments. Yeah. But very minimal um, for me where I couldn't look at a screen and screens kind of got me through that period. Sure. Um, I'm trying to put myself in a position where I wouldn't have had that tool. And, and it's really hard to think about. I mean, what, what did you occupy yourself with on those days? Yeah. Well, okay. And I just want to say something real quick about this is that pain is relative. You know, and there's this great study that showed that people who become quadriplegics almost have the exact same quality of life after a period of adjustment has completed. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to say that because I was in the dark with my eyes covered and earplugs in, I had somehow a happier or more miserable life than somebody who is, you know, let's say from a broken home where their, their, their parents are not supportive and they're, they're, you know, I had extremely supportive, kind parents who themselves were limited in a lot of ways to, to cope and, and care for me, but did, I would get, argue a passing job at, at kind of providing themselves. So I want to kind of say, you know, couch what I say next in, in that, uh, um, you know, pain, pain is a relative experience. And so there's this great Victor Frankl has this book called man's search for meaning. And, um, uh, there's this idea in there that pain is like a gas. It fills up the em empty places. Mm. And so if you have, uh, um, you know, I, I spent three years in Kenya when I was in my young twenties and I experienced people who went through the Rwandan genocide and who were relatively well-adjusted people. They didn't like talking about it, but they, you know, they had been through the Rwandan genocide. And then I, would live in Seattle and, and I had engaged people who had tough family situations. They were maybe working a job they didn't like, and they would contem contemplate suicide. And, um, and it was just interesting to me to c compare and contrast that this is not to say that somehow the pain of that person in Seattle is not legitimate or that the pain of that person in the Rwandan genocide is somehow legitimate or whatever. It's, it's just to say that there's a certain relativity mm -hmm. that cross it, that, that is subject to the capacity of the person who's experiencing it. Well, I'm, I'm so, glad you say that. And I, I always yeah. say this not to interrupt you, but I always say this on the podcast is that it's impossible to compare our experiences to yeah. each other yeah. because yeah. no one will ever live in your body, but you, and this yeah. is, you know, the, I, yeah. I totally hear what you're, what you're saying. And it's yeah, very yeah. important, but this is also like, we're here for your story today. You yeah. Know? Thank you. Thank like, this you. This is yeah. relative, oh. relative to you. You don't need to, yes. you it's don't very, need to. I love that. I yeah, appreciate yeah. that. And I, I, I receive that. So, yeah. um, so yeah, what I, what I did to occupy my time was I, um, uh, did a lot of research on this illness mm. and, um, I, I have, I still have, um, I, I look at it kind of almost on an entertainment level now, but I still had a, I still have an Excel spreadsheet that has my CBCs, my complete blood panels, CB, whatever that is. Yeah. My yeah, complete CBC. blood panels, yeah. CBCs yeah. Of, of my entire life. Because what I did is I went even to my uh, health records of when I was six, eight, 10 years old, back when the health records are written in pencil and then photocopied. Um, Cause I'm, uh, an 80s child uh, <laughs> and before computers at the doctor's office. Um, and so, uh, but those were scanned and put into a PDF by some, you know, whatever hospital that I was at. So I, but I literally inputted all those values into a spreadsheet, you know, um, white blood cell count, platelet counts, this kind of stuff uh, to try to track and get some handle of my, my, my own kind of um, health condition throughout my life and to watch what happened to that CBC 
before and after the um, the viral infection and the institute uh, institution of chronic fatigue syndrome into my body. Um, so that was a huge thing. I, I worked with uh, specialists all over the country, um, paid them way too much money to do things that they to basically they had no real help for me. In fact, they almost hurt me in a, in a couple um, very specific situations mm -hmm. by prescribing things that were terrible. And, uh, um, just tried a lot of drugs. I mean, at one point I was injecting, uh, um, bovine enzymes into my muscles with needles. Mm -hmm. Um, so just lots of, lots of stuff, uh, learning in, in the CFS world, there's a certain, there's different schools of thought. Um, so there are, there's a Tietelbaum school of thought. Um, by the way, anything I say here is, you know, obviously not medical advice. Yeah. This is. This is uh, my own experience, and I would never, um, uh, uh, you know, what I say is is not um, necessarily, you know, people should check with their doctor before they, yeah, you know, whatever. But uh, um, yeah, there's a certain there's a Tietelbaum school of thought where the D-ribose is is like this focus and some other stuff. Um, I found that to be an unsatisfying. Uh, school within CFS of how to improve. Um, and so then I, what was left? And so there are these other kind of options. And so, um, that, but that I, I, I had no idea the extreme, uh, complication it, that is the immune system of the body. I, I found out later through my research that evolutionarily the immune system is more, is the only thing more complex than it in the human body is the human brain. That's how complex the immune system is. If you ever see charts of it on the internet, it's like worlds upon worlds. Mm. You know, it's just these giant, it's, it's got these spiral galaxies all intersecting. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. You know, these, these, um, leukotene or whatever they're called IL markers that are inflammatory markers. Um, and we're just scratching the surface of this thing with all the giant prowess of the Western world firing itself at this, at this system. We still, it's a giant black box and it's, um, it's, it's, so that's, I would argue probably why we're still struggling to find not only a cure for CFS, but even a biomarker mm -hmm. that is real, uh, robust because um it's it's deeply it's something is deeply wrong inside of this world upon world's immune system so yeah and i mean with my chronic illness i'm still undiagnosed and i'm i'm yeah. uh, gonna be 38 in a couple of days here okay. and i've been flared up for over six years and yep. this is not the first time that this has flared up for me um yep. so it's like yeah, I mean, if you fall into this category where the doctors don't know what to do, you are just yeah. like on your own. <laughs> yep. And it yep. sounds like you really lived that for years where you were just kind of trying to be your own doctor. It's not, I mean, it sounds like you were still seeing medical professionals, but, but you yep. fall into this category where like the no doctor knows what to do, you know? I've actually had doctors like not, not actually run from me, but virtually run from me because they're like, uh <laughs> i do not want to involve myself with the uh the giant burning dumpster fire that is this this person i i cannot handle you know so and i don't blame them you know this is this is the thing is that i think that having cfs taught me a lot of compassion because yes some people distance themselves from me because they just didn't want to do the work yeah but but 
a lot of people and a lot of doctors distance themselves from me because they themselves have difficult lives. You know, there's that great phrase, um, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Mm-hmm. And I really, I, I, I believe that. Um, so uh, I, I do have some hurts and some wounding from people who I felt were just not doing the work to, to step up. But in general, it was a huge lesson in compassion towards, you know, again, this relative experience called suffering that everybody is engaging. Yeah. Did you go through a period of shock when, when you learned that doctors were not going to be there for you? Because we kind of grow no. up being told that like doctors are, you know, right. doctors are gods. Doctors can do anything. Trust your sure. doctor. And then you get to a position yeah. where you need your doctor more than ever. And they're just like, well, I have no idea what to do. Yeah. No, th- I mean, I've always, so I've, I've always been a bit of an outsider. I've never considered myself like part of the system. And so I don't think that I ever had a real sense of reliance upon the medical establishment to begin with. Mm. So thankfully, you know, that's a bad thing in some ways, because I probably should have been more involved with like, hey, actually, CFS can, uh, can be caused by mono, don't kiss your girlfriend. You know, that probably would have been good advice for me, but I was like a renegade and I don't need that, you know, and I'm, <laughs> I'm above that kind of common, st- I'll just suffer it out and you know, but, uh, um, uh, the cool part is, is I never really had a sense of identity with Western medicine to begin with. So how long did that relationship last with that girl that gave you mono? We, we, uh, I think we broke up, um, about six months later. Uh, so, and, um, yeah. Uh, so she was, uh, uh, we, we were, um, this is obviously tangential. Um, we were two people who really respected and loved each other, but sometimes there's people who just realize they're not supposed to be together. And, uh, there, thankfully, I think we both sort of left that relationship, um, blessing the other person and saying, you know, yeah, uh, I love you. Well. Yeah. So, that's the best. It's nice. I, cause I have some, uh, ex relationships where there, it wasn't like that, where there was sort of, uh, it, it ended with a lot of hurt. And so it's nice to have at least one relationship where I can look back on it and go, there was just love. And, uh, um, you know, you, you need a couple wins in, yeah. in the game breakup. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, unless you're getting married, every relationship ends in a breakup, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes. And so the question is like, is it, is, is there such a thing as a healthy breakup? And, and yeah. I'm, I'm, it's nice to have one, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, I, you know, not to discount the people who are not married, who are still together. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But what yeah. I'm trying to say is like all the relationships I've had until the current one ended you know, and the current one is going strong and I'm so grateful for it. But like you go through a lot of painful breakups in your life um, for, for a lot of people. And I, that's the attitude that I have always tried to take of like, you know, leaving each other on good terms. You know, I'm a big Star Trek fan. There's this thing on deep space nine about a Bajoran breakup where you go on vacation together. You decide you're going to break up, you go on vacation, you spend a couple days, you know, together like be intimate with each other love each other and then say goodbye and i love that i thought that was such a fun way to to approach that i love um, that so once and, and by the way uh zach will enjoy the star trek reference oh so. I, I know i know <laughs> zach and i have talked about star trek at great length um so once once you broke up with this person it's not i six months later that's around the time where you were starting to have this chronic fatigue was that yep. something that came up in this relationship? 
Not really. I mean, because when we were still together, um, I was still fairly vertical, you mm-hmm. know, so I was still walking in the world. I had to kind of lay down here or there, but, um, yeah, is it, it was, something you've talked about since then? Are you still in touch? Uh, you know, it's funny. I always, cause I never wanted her to feel bad because that she was this kind of, you know, her mono was the catalyst for like the worst thing that's ever happened to me because it's totally not her fault. So yeah. I, I never wanted her to feel that way. Um, uh, so I, in general, kind of never mentioned it, but she always did. <laughs> so if in the, uh, let's say three times we've talked since 2013, when we broke up, um, she constantly was, wa- was kind of checking in on my health. So I, which goes to show again, just what a, what a quality person this was. So, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So you just were like a tumbleweed rolling downhill for a while. Oh, brutal. Yeah. Yeah. When did you hit the the bottom of the ravine, and when did you start yeah. to crawl back up the other side? Yeah, so like I said, the two the the the, the kind of double whammy of the rock bottom was um, in let's say October November of 2015 when I realized that I was potentially going to die. I wasn't you know that time in the bedroom with my sunglasses on with my phone um, in the dark. Uh, that was in a and that that was also the first time that I I would say that I had um almost a spiritual experience of death, um, if you can believe it. Um it was <clears throat> it's difficult to explain because you know th- they've done brain scans on people who are having mystical experiences, and the parts of the brain that light up are not the areas of the brain reserved for speech. So I don't know how much of a materialist you are materialist. I mean, philosophically in the sense that you believe in uh, mystical experiences or not, but um, what people describe are what they call mystical experiences when they're having these phenomena, whether or not they're legitimate. Um, the parts of the brain that light up are not related to speech. So it's difficult to actually even describe them because it's, it's outside of the, it's, you know, it's a different part of the universe. It's a different part of human experience. Um, so then you get poets and you get songwriters who try to describe things like love. Mm. And, and so you get these giant metaphorical, you know, they leave behind normal English language and they go into these, you know, it, it, this, this is why they do that. It's because it's, it's a non, um, uh, what's, what's inexorable experience. And so, um, or not inexorable. What's the word for non, you can't use language for it. Anyway, the point is, is that I, my experience I had this almost like a spiritual experience of, of death where I, I realized death was real. I realized death was coming and I had, um, a feeling of what death would be like. And it was, um, mind blowing. It was amazing. Um, uh, I would, I almost want to say it was good because now it was not good. It was horror. It was horror. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a truly, um, it was an experience of visceral palpable horror uh but there was a certain it was amazing it was like uh it had a certain um feel to it which was like i had never known or seen or experienced anything like this before and so um but it was extremely rattling and so when i had that kind of mystical experience of death um that threw me into high gear and said okay it's time to you know, this is the bottom. And that's when I moved back to Grand Rapids. And that's when I laid down full time. I cut everything out of my life. 
and just focused on tried to focus on recovery. But again, like I said, the second rock bottom experience, um, the double punch was a year later, still laying in the dark with no hope. And, um, and I had laid down, you'd think if you'd laid down for a year, you'd improve. But again, I, I actually had not improved. I actually had gotten sicker. And so that's when I sort of began to want to die. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, um, it all changed in 2017 in January. I have this terrible memory in 2000, in, in, on New Year's Eve 2016, going into January 1st, 2017, where I'm at my parents' house. My, my siblings, I think, maybe were there, and we were going to watch the ball drop together. And I was laying in the dark with my ears plugged and my eyes covered with an eye mask with my hands at my side, like a mummy. Mm. And, uh, like I had for many months for many, you know, over a year, I'd done that. And somebody said into my bedroom, Hey, you know, Simon, the ball's about to drop. Would you like to come out and count down the new year with us? So I undid all my gear and I went out to the TV room and I counted down the new year. I kind of croaked out, you know, five, four, three, two, one. And then I just stumbled back into this room and put on my eye mask again. And it's, it's this extremely miserable experience. I mean, it was like torture, you know, at this time of celebration and new, I mean, everyone loves new years. It's a time of new hope and new possibility. And, you know, um, all anxiety is that song about, you know, forgiveness and new possibility. And I was this just broken and, um, had no hope for possibility at all. But lo and behold, uh, a month later, um, I had created this list of what I called my silver bullets, which was I, I, I ordered in my research um, a bunch of drugs that I would try first as just, sil- I called them silver bullets, like one shot to try to cure CFS with a single drug. And if this, if my silver bullet list would be exhausted, then I would do the awful work of holistic medicine, where it's like tweaking 1700 variables to try to find that perfect cocktail i did not want to do that <laughs> i've, I've wanted, done it it didn't work yeah it was terrible. a nightmare it was so expensive <laughs> oh it's so expensive and so i i don't want to i i knew that that was a nightmare and so i said i want i i've got to create this silver bullet list so i i did the enzymes um and i did a couple other things um i think uh, a b vitamin um a trial of this certain form of b vitamins but again, not medical advice. Um, I tried this drug that, by the way, the reference for it did not come from these doctors that I paid all this gobs of money to. It came from reddit.com. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> from the, CFS, the CFS world there on Reddit, r slash CFS. Um, they had kind of in, whispered in the wings at times that this drug um, made a difference. And so I put it on my silver bullet list. Let, you know, my list of one one shot wonders and uh lo and behold the first day i tried it something 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 shifted inside of my body and i went that was weird and i and my and by the way i I went and like fetched something from upstairs i was at my my parents house that weekend and you know how's it going simon oh good i'm trying i'm on this new med um and uh um and they said, Hey, can someone get my sweatshirt from my bedroom uh, at upstairs? 
And I said, oh, I'll get it. And I ran up and I got it. And everyone just looks around. <laughs> so um, that drug is called low-dose naltrexone or LDN. I've never and, heard of that. Uh, yep. And so uh, uh, low-dose naltrexone. Um, it, naltrexone is a drug um, which is for heroin addiction. The FDA has approved it for up to 50 milligrams. But people who microdose it, half a, millig- half a milligram, one milligram, one and a half milligrams, maybe two milligrams, three milligrams. People who microdose it, um, ha- it has an effect of smoothing the immune system and uh, uh, smoothing Im- immune disorders. Uh, and so I went on this drug, a microdosing LDN, and for the first time in my life, I got like 45 minutes of restorative sleep. Because one of the one of the horrible parts about CFS is you don't sleep well. You mm-hmm. wake up every morning after having eight hours of sleep and you f- do not feel rested. And so I had done that for years, woken up and I'm just like, oh, I, you know, I was I was I was passed out. I had no conscious memory. I was not sleeping all day like some people who maybe struggle with depression do. Um, I had never struggled with clinical depression, by the way, thankfully, with this. It was just painful and difficult, but I never like struggled to shave or keep myself clean and this kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, uh, w- the will to shave, I mean, of course, some days I was too, uh, sick to shave, but, uh, um, I, yeah, so I, I took this drug and it, for the first time it, it caused me to have a little window, let's say 45 minutes to an hour and a half at the beginning of the sleep cycle where I actually had restorative sleep. And it was just like how some people talk about antidepressants, just giving them that little leg up. Mm-hmm. It doesn't solve them. It just gives them that leg up. That's what it, that's what LDN low dose naltrexone did to me. Um, I started to just get a little, I caught the lip of, 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 a, of a ledge to crawl out of this hell that I was in and just got the, just a little toehold, you know? And, um, and so then I went on, I went on that. It took me a long time because again, there's no doctor. So I had to self titrate. So I uh, would dissolve the powder into water and then I would drink the water with the graduated cylinder more and more every day to try to uh, find the correct dosage. Hmm. Um, thankfully I had a doctor who prescribed, who was willing to prescribe, uh, um, you know, this, this drug to me. Now I, I found out later there's actually pharmacies that will make a liquid version of this but back then i didn't know that so i would actually grind the pill up or break open the pill pour this um gelatin powder in a gelatin capsule i'd pour the powder into look into water i would dissolve it and then i would drink a certain portion of that water to try to take a smaller amount um to try to microdose it at different titration levels so again i had to be the doctor sucks but this is what we have to do in 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 a lot of the uh um, chronic illness world. And so I, I found a certain, um, amount that seemed to have a positive benefit, which was for me, one milligram of LDN of Lotus naltrexone right before bed. And it gave me just a little bit of restorative sleep. And I stayed on that one milligram and I started to improve and I started to improve. And, um, that was January, 2016. And here we are in, you know, what is this September, 2022? And I still am on it today, but, um, it took me, let's say, um, five years, but I fully recovered from CFS today. Wow. I don't have any, symptoms. 
but it was an extremely slow process. So like, let's say 2016, I could finally lay without an eye mask on 2017. I could finally go for a walk per week, 2018. I could go, I could spend a day outside the house. 2019, I could spend four days outside the house, you know, 2020, I could spend all day outside the house, but I could not overexert myself. And finally to 2021, I started to be able to actually exert myself, you know, and now 2022, I, I can fully exert myself. So it's just been, uh, you know, it's been a brutal recovery, but I, but I've done the work and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Wow. That's incredible. I, yeah. And I, I put a disclaimer at the front of every episode that this is not medical advice. Do not take yeah, any not medical, medical action without talking to your doctor. I'm glad you mentioned the same thing. Yeah. Um, and But I'm also like all about sharing practical things that worked for someone. And this yep. is one of the most tangible ones that I've heard. You know, Good. this is a drug that you can try. Um, but obviously, talk to your doctor. It sounds like this is yeah. a prescription drug you need to get a prescription yeah, and, for. And, and I will say not medical advice it is a it's not a crazily dangerous drug it's not like mm. you know it's the fda approves it up to 50 milligrams so taking one milligram my doctor was like sure i'll prescribe that to you one fiftieth of the legal dose knock yourself out you know he doesn't care and there's there's it seems like there's very low side effects so wow you know that's again not medical advice but it's as it's not like you're you know microdosing some extremely dangerous substance it's, it seems like it's a relatively um uh gentle it, i mean it's an ex, it's a heavy it, it makes you pretty tired it, it's it can have a heavy experience but it doesn't like you know you're not you know anyway so i, I don't want to predict what it's going to cause in people but it seems yeah. like it has amazing a low, yeah yeah a low yeah, effect you know effect. it's impossible to predict what it'll cause in other people because everyone's body exactly. is different you know like yeah. i i even though I'm undiagnosed, I'm on this cocktail of medication right now that I finally yep. found a, a traditional Western medicine doctor who's willing to work with me. Good for you. And yeah. she um, has prescribed this whole cocktail. And then I've added some things in that from, through my own research, yep. um, but like working together with her and I started yep. to get better and I've tried to take out individual things from this cocktail and gotten worse each time, taking out different things. And I have always wanted a silver bullet. I've always wanted one thing, you know, but it looks like in my case, I need multiple things. And I'm just yeah. kind of kind of trying to shift my mindset and get on board with that because it seems to be working. Yep. Um, and yep. th I just say that to say that everyone is different and who knows yep. what will work for anyone. But that's right. Yeah, I've I, I have friends who have taken um, low dose naltrexone and had a negative experience with it in the sense that it kind of made them tired and sleepy and it didn't help. Yeah. And then I had my friend's wife who had long term um, fibromyalgia and fatigue, obviously immune system caused, according to her. And, and CFS turned her whole life. I mean, sorry, uh, low-dose nal low naltrexone tur turned whole, her whole life around. Wow. For fibromyalgia yeah. too. Yep. Yep. Wow. So that's, yeah. So it, it is, it's now I don't understand how I'm not a doctor I don't, and actually doctors don't even understand why LDN seems to help certain people, but it seems that it has some sort of moderating effect towards the immune system where let's say the immune system what it seems to do for me, not a doctor, what it seems to do is almost like, let's say you have an engine, it seems like to almost give oil to the engine where it sort of smooths it out and gives it 
just a little bit of functionality or, or in the sense that it stops draining the energy of the body. I yeah. don't know. That, that's the closest kind of metaphor that I can, it's, it has a smoothing effect. I don't know. Yeah, that's so fascinating. This is exciting yeah. stuff. I mean, this is my fourth episode on CFS and the first time I've heard of this. So okay. really, really exciting. I'm so grateful yeah. to be able to, and, and no to judgment, share this. No disdain or, or judgment towards people with CFS who it doesn't work for. I mean, that's, there's a lot of people it, it does not work for. Yeah, and so I, I want to make that clear. And there's so many things to try for CFS, yep. you know, like we've talked about a ton of them on this show and, um, I, you know, like this is, we're, we're in the gray area, you know, chronic right. illness, we're in the gray area where the research has not known. been done. Like I, mm -hmm. I had testicular cancer right before my 30th birthday. And it, there was no gray area at all. It was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. A, B, C. A, B, C. Yeah. We, we do the surgery. Uh, we, we do the follow-up and you're good to go. And I, I was just like, absolutely astonished. You know, it's like my, my yep. cancer experience was so smooth and quick and easy. I mean, yep. it was definitely like, there was some difficulty there for sure. It was terrifying yep. and I had to have surgery and that was scary. And there, I, I had to do the recovery, which was a few weeks of, you know, Yep. feeling feeling a little rough but but then it was over and it was like what happened you know like yeah. go to a doctor and they give you answers and it's over um I, i've and that's after already having experienced you know a couple of flare-ups of this mystery illness so the 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 difference there was just black and white um but then back to like having my illness flare up again it's like okay now we're back in the gray area where no one knows what to do and all you can do is try and keep trying things, keep switching doctors, keep switching yep. medications and hope that you hit something that works. Um, and it's just like, I love hearing stories about someone who hit that thing that worked yeah. and it, yeah. it, it changed your life. I also am so interested in how long it took to get better, how you stuck yep. with the same, uh, the same dosage for yep. years. And it sounds yep. like it took about five or six years to kind yep. of yeah, get I out mean, of it completely. The, the the rule of thumb, which I've heard from other CFS people and which applied to me, is the time it takes you to get sick can be related to the time it takes you to get well. And that's certainly, I was sick for 10 years and five of that was getting sicker and worse and five of that was getting better and improving. Wow. Um, but again, you know, that's just our some of our experiences. Um, I also want to say a observation that i've made not a doctor um <laughs> is that there seems to be two camps of people in the cfs world there are what i call the clean cfs and what i call uh the complicated cfs and that seems to be where some people myself included seem to have had just a single uniform cfs event um where it's pretty, it's pretty clear what's affecting them. And yeah. that's, that's part of fatigue syndrome. Other people have CFS as part of a constellation yeah. of issues of comorbidities and those situations clean versus complicated. That's a more complicated situation and seems to be harder to solve because you know, it's one thing to try to change, you know, when, with CFS, it was almost like trying to change a wheel while the car was moving, but trying to change 
all the wheels of the car while it's moving, it's like it's impossible. Task. And you don't even know if what you're doing is a car. Like <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So so my heart it, for anyone who's out there listening to this who has like um depression and fibromyalgia and CFS and uh um uh gluten intolerance and yeah. and 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 they have yeah, this yeah, constellation. Yeah. I, I know good, beautiful people with that condition. My heart just goes out to you and I I just want you to know I I uh I feel for you um, and, you know, resonate with your pain insofar as I, I can. Yes. So many people are diagnosed with CFS or fibromyalgia um, as a diagnosis of exclusion without having right. the, that you have that s clear moment. One kiss. Yep. That is your clear One. moment. <laughs> like, you know that that's where this started for you. Had sure. you had any health issues prior no. to that in life? Nothing. No, I was, yeah. I was like the, yeah, I, I, uh, I was, you know. I, I was a very healthy uh, young guy. Um, I, yeah. I I regularly would walk, you know, ten miles a day, and just yeah. You know. And I I I think that I'm more. I mean, I've never been diagnosed with CFS, but I absolutely could have been at any moment along the way because yeah. no. a, a lot of my symptoms have lined up. Um, right. But I don't have. I mean, and I had mono as a kid, but I didn't. My my issues did not start right after that. You know. Um, um, to my memory anyway. So, and, and mine has come and gone throughout my life. Although I, I have heard that that can happen with CFS, but, but all that to say that like so many people are, are misdiagnosed because doctors are not willing to dig deeper. Like if you have a rare blood disease or if you have, you know, histamine intolerance, which I'm learning a lot about recently or, yep. or, 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 or like there's so many things that are so hard, hard to diagnose. Yep. So many things that doctors, don't know much about maybe they've yep. heard the word once before um and they just don't know how to keep digging for you and then they just slap a label on you of fibromyalgia yep. or cfs then you're kind of like you know it, the, the barrier to getting better if you have a misdiagnosis is really really difficult that's right yeah absolutely and it's so but your case i mean it absolutely sounds like i, I like how you phrase this clean cfs where there's a clean clear reason Yep. to why it happened, got sicker for five years, found the right silver bullet, got better for five years, and now are in recovery. So yep. do you live with the fear of relapse? Yeah. I mean, I don't let it define myself. So during COVID, I uh, was among the, my, the first of my friends to get shot and, and boosted you know, um, to get vaxxed and boosted. So I, I do, I do have a, a healthy fear of COVID. I do have a, but you know, the cool thing about having gotten better for five years is that during that five-year period, I've had viral infections and I've recovered from viral infections without any sense of fatigue. Wow. And so I have a cautious confidence towards viral infections at this point in my life. Now that said, my partner will often note that certain situations cause me to get triggered into a place of fear. Um, and it usually involves feeling trapped in some way. So <laughs> we had, when we were dating, we were uh, um, uh, uh, at the beach. Uh, we were way up like outside the main beach area, um, kind of laying in a hammock and you know looking at the sunset and being romantic and they sounded the the, the horn to let everyone know you need to clear the beach because the sun you're supposed to be off the beach after the sun is set 
And we said, ah, whatever, you know, what are they going to do for us? Right. So it's not like they're going to arrest us for staying after the sunset. So we, we stayed in the hammock and we walked down maybe in the dark. Um, we'd walk down this Michigan dune to leave. And we noticed that they had actually, there was a gate Mm. and they had locked us in the beach Mm. and, um, something flipped in me and I started trying to break this gate with raw strength. Now, obviously (laughs) you cannot (laughs) break a gate with raw strength, but you know, what's happening here is that I have experienced, um, a, a, a very tremendous amount of feeling trapped at points by having had to lay on a couch um day in and day out for years being you know like i said at the beginning being stuck in a bed around a couch for two and a half years straight was a terrible experience and um i don't wish it upon people and uh and so that has caused me that i must have felt trapped at some very intense points during that experience because now certain entrapment moments the other time was when we got lost in the woods picking trying to find mushrooms we were looking for morel mushrooms in the woods and i we got lost and i had another kind of panic so there'll be these certain spatial again it's always kind of um it's always a situatedness related to it's it's related to how i'm situated in the world it's it's existential but i'll have some experience of feeling trapped and then i'll sort of just lose my mind um sounds like medical ptsd yeah yeah i i would not i i know that i've had trauma from that um and so i i've been in counseling um pretty much every uh i've, I've been in counseling since 2009 so you know 13 years now but uh um uh except for a little gap when i was really sick and couldn't talk to people um but and so i think that that has helped a little bit um but it's like you know it's like any sort of major traumatic event like let's say the death of a child or something where you have this intense grieving period at the beginning and if you can navigate that healthy it's 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 good but you're never really out of the woods you have these sort of emanations Mm -hmm. these waves of trauma which still still sort of pop up here and there in surprising and weird ways and you sort of have to deal with that again in this in some sort of tool of grief that you've developed in your life to feel and then release and uh and have some sort of greater hope or greater awareness of life outside of this limiting you know kind of terrible horror so yeah so you you mentioned this sort of like uh experience of like spiritual death but then that then you find this medication and you sort of go through a rebirth have you ruminated on this at all? This fact that you have had a, a death and rebirth yeah. in your life? Yeah, I feel like a whole different person. Um, I, 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 uh, I'm definitely, you know, there's this great phrase in uh, uh, therapy where they talk about how when you go through a major event, you will never be the person you used to be. And that's a major source of grief for a lot of people, understandably because we like ourselves if we're healthy people unhealthy people you know maybe struggle with self-esteem but if you're a good healthy person you have a sense of self-esteem you have a sense of self-worth i like myself i value myself and you have to like something tangible there's something that's real that i like i don't just like some image of myself i like a real thing 
and then you go through a major life event, that real thing is severely affected in some way. So the thing you liked is gone. And so then there's this moment. This is, this is why CFS is so intensely psychological, emotional, and spiritual that people go through. But there's this moment where you realize you're, you'll never, this thing you used to be that you used to love, that's gone forever. And there, it, I, 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 in, in generally understood in, in kind of these therapeutic experiences, the life is found by rediscovering the joy and the capacity for life in the, in the new now that we have, rather than trying to attach ourselves to the old us who we liked back then. Mm -hmm. um, I will never be the person that I was when I was 29. And I miss that guy. He was a good kid and a good guy. Um, he was energetic. He was a lot more fun in a lot of ways. He wasn't so serious. Uh, he had a lot more energy to be in the world. Um, he was simpler in a lot of ways. And I, I really miss him, the person I used to be in my 20s. But he was also naive in a lot of ways. And he was also a little bit um, self-destructive and inconsiderate. And he also didn't really understand the value of grief or pain. Um, and And the resonance that we can have with each other's pain he didn't have that that's kind of stuff and so i am sad that that person's gone but i have come to to revalue and re love and discover the esteem that i have now with this new person you know and so yeah there is there is a rebirth and um it's not easy but there's this you know what's really been helpful is the joseph campbell hero's journey um, I don't know if you know Joseph oh, yeah. Campbell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's like the inspiration kind of for everything from Star Wars to, you know, comic books. Like everything's formulated after this hero's journey. Yes. So I, I, I have found a lot of help. In, um, well, let me put it this way. Jo Joseph Campbell's hero's journey has given a lot of vocabulary to a lot of this. Um, so, yep. Yeah. You know, like the, you, you have to have the challenge presented. You turn away from the challenge, but then something forces you to accept the challenge and then you have to push yeah. through it. You go into the, the depths of hell and then you find your way out. You know, that, that is the, the hero's journey. It's very interesting um, putting your own story through that uh, filter. Yeah. Um, I'm also, I'm, I'm amazed to hear that, you know, in that five years that you've been getting better, you, you know, you came back to life, you started dating, you got married, you had a kid. It's a great story. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, basically in 2017, I, I started to realize, so in January, I started this drug and by March I could feel the momentum and I went, oh, wow, I may recover. Mm. And it was, I, I, uh, oh man, I have this memory of stepping outside of my house and starting to walk down the sidewalk. And it was like, golden mm. this broken beat up sidewalk which people walk on every day and they have no awareness of this sidewalk right but i have this memory of walking down the sidewalk and it was just shouting joy at me this this place it was just full of potential and life um just was pouring out of this concrete you know um, that was the beginning where I started to realize, I said, this, this may actually work. My life is not over. 
Um, I have a potential for life to, to happen to me. So when I said that, I said, what do I want out of this life now that I actually have a potential? And I said, you know, I, I've always wanted to have a life partner and I've always wanted to have kids. And so um, I created a, an online profile um, uh, there in Michigan and I I spent a lot of time on it because I was laying down all day. So I was like, yeah, you know, I'll just work on this profile, make it really good. Um, and then I didn't go on a date for seven months because I, I was too sick to date casually. I said to myself, I don't have enough energy to date a good person, but I have just enough energy to go on a date with a really great person. Mm. And so I, uh, I waited and I waited. And then I got this message at three in the morning from this nurse and uh, she was beautiful and she was delightful and I, I, something in me just felt, um, it, it was different. And, uh, um, cause I had volume dated in the past. I should make that in Capitol Hill, may I add, <laughs> which, uh, you know, is a different experience. And, uh, this was the exact opposite. It was seven months of saying no. And then when I finally said yes, um, that's the woman that I ended up falling in love with and marrying. It was my first date on mesh.com in this in this new city wow um, our first date was three and a half hours of talking our second date was seven hours of talking our third date was eight hours of talking it was like meeting um a, you know i don't believe in necessarily destiny but it was like meeting a soulmate of kind of some some sorts you know where i think that we can maybe have like four or five of those in our lifetime and that it was definitely one of those it was just amazing um yeah, but I, she had no idea how sick I was because I didn't tell her for the first date or two. Cause I, you know, it's a big, it's a big thing to, to say to somebody like, Hey, I'm yeah. severely disabled, may never actually be a functional human being. But around four months in, she was, she was deeply in love with me, but she realized how sick I was at about month four. I told her, by the way, on date three or date two, I told her pretty quickly. Um, but she d really didn't realize it until about January of 2018. And when she realized it, she went, oh my goodness, I'm in love with this man who is really in trouble. And she looked up Wikipedia and CFS and Wikipedia says like uh, recovery rate, like 2%, right? It's <laughs> wow. So, she's, you know, she's in love with this like broken <laughs> situation. And I said to her, I will never judge you if you break up with me for how sick I am ever judge you. I will. I, I am just, I mean, she like, you know, we have this memory of looking in each other's eyes and me saying to her, listen, I, the very fact that I've been able to have a loving experience with you for four months is a gift on yeah. its own. And I don't even need more than this because this wow. itself is a rewarding gift. And, um, and she heard that, you know, and I think that just caused her to go, this is a really good connection. And so um, uh, she says, I'll give you three months. <laughs> she said, uh, I'll give you three months. Uh, if you don't show improvement in three months, we got to end this thing. And I said, deal. So three months later, I was like remarkably improved. And so she went, I think this guy is getting better. So I still had to lay down on my wedding day. Um it was not, you know, I had pictures of me in my tuxedo, in my black suit, uh, laying on the floor in our little area where the bachelor bachelor party was 
kind of getting ready or the groomsmen were getting ready. Um, so it, it, it's been a constant source of struggle and pain in our relationship. A lot of our first year of marriage was actually painful and difficult because of how sick I still was, hmm. but she's hung in there. And, uh, I feel lucky because I'm like, man, if she would date and marry me as I was that sick, I'm, you know, she's probably pretty good for whatever there is to come. So, wow. Absolutely. Yeah. You've, you, you mentioned this at the beginning that you learned so many lessons over the course of CFS and you've talked through several of them, but what, what in your mind are the biggest lessons that you've learned from this? Three things. <clears throat> One is the reality of the horror of existence. In our world, in the Western world, sometimes we want to brush it under the rug that um, death is real and death is coming. That life is full of tragedy at times. Not necessarily. You know, if it's not full of tragedy, we shouldn't provoke that tragedy. But it, whether we like it or not, like um, uh, existence is an enterprise that is full of horror. I believe, wow. and we can avoid that. But that is that is a true fact. And a lot of times, our whole system is built up. Now, I'm I'm really going to sound like the existential dude, but like our whole system, in a lot of ways, is made for avoidance of that horror. It's it, it it packages and puts away the elderly into homes where we don't see them suffering. It pushes away the poor into places where we don't see them anymore. It, it's any anything that to avoid pain and difficulty. Um, and then people experience something difficult and they're they don't have the tool set for developing. So that's mm -hmm. the second lesson. The first lesson is the, the reality of the horrors that existence um, can have and often has. The second lesson is the preparedness we need to have for those. We are not victims. We don't need to be just at the mercy of these things. We can develop ourselves uh, with the correct tools of grief and the tools of gratitude that allow us to navigate these things, that we don't have to just be, you know, at the mercy of these horrible things that happen to us, but we can be have uh, the certain the, the 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 tools like I, I'm kind of repeating myself, but the tools we have to navigate these things the, to the best of our ability. Now they still may take our lives, but at least we fight. We can give it a shot. So that would that would be the second thing: is eat well, exercise. You know, forgive those who have hurt you, and uh, develop yourself psychologically so that you can work on your trust issues and have life giving relationships. Um, you know, we just go down the list of what it means to be a healthy human being, right? Um, so that we don't have to quickly get those things when things go bad. You know, it's kind of like somebody trying to get in shape after they've already had a heart attack and a quadruple bypass. You don't want to do that. You want to have all that stuff done ahead of time. So when the, 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 the health emergency comes, you are in your full fighting form to, to engage that, mm -hmm. you know? Um, we have the ability to become stronger and more robust people in this life. We don't need to simply, you know, hope that we're better. We can, we, I am better. I was able to navigate CFS without much of a risk of suicide because of all of the work I had done around grief mm. and suffering in the previous, uh, therapeutic relationships that I had had. Yeah, yeah. So that's number two is that eat well, exercise, work on yourself psychologically, all these things that will prepare you so, th so that you have a good chance at having a quality of life and enduring these terrible things that come our way. You know, when, when, um, we got fired from our job 
uh, having the, even a good diet and exercise is a huge gift to navigate that in a way that is balanced. If we are eating unhealthily and we are not exercised and we're not psychologically well, something like simply getting fired can cause these giant domino effects of negative things, you know? So it's, it's, there's these giant connective health constellations that I think are really important for people to embody. Um, and then the third thing is just the, 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 um, uh, experientially, uh, what makes life worth living is, uh, um, is the relationships that we have. Um, I think that having CFS caused me to withdraw from relationship. I could have very few friends, very few romantic relationships, very few family relationships. And the loss of that was the worst thing for sure. Um, I, I definitely believe that the, yeah, the, the third, the big lesson CFS taught me was, um, uh, life, you know, there's this great phrase, um, called, uh, happiness is not the result of circumstances, but allegiances. And I really believe that, that, um, uh, we can be eating, like we can be stuck on a desert Island eating like raw fish, but if we have a great friend there, (laughs) it's relatively enjoyable experience, you know? It's like, yeah. you know, versus you can live in some golden Donald Trump high rise, golden toilets and, you know, whatever. But if you're alone, you're miserable, you can be in hell. Yeah. And uh, so I, I, I think that 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 was a huge learning lesson. And I do not take my relationships for granted as much as I used to because of that. Yeah. I mean, those are those three lessons are so profound. So. I know you wouldn't wish this on yourself. You've already said yeah. that. But if you could change the past and prevent this from happening to you, knowing that you would lose those three lessons, would you make that choice? Yeah, I definitely would not. You know, if I had to cho- if I had to choose between being fully healthy at my age now without CFS and not having had those lessons, I would have, have absolutely choose CFS. But ideally, isn't that crazy? It's so crazy. Well, well, I know, but okay. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. But in my, you know, in my offense, maybe uh, I, I, I also think that it's possible to learn these things um, without such a complete terrible experience. I do yeah. believe that uh, the most great lessons of life come through a crucible of suffering. I do. I do think that that's true. Uh, but the magnitude of the suffering was so great. You know, I, yeah. I, uh, um, I, 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 you know, there's this great phrase, my friend, my friend says about how to help children. We have a child who's one year old and, and, uh, we're trying to learn how to help him to act well. And, um, there's this phrase called the least effective dose. Okay. When it comes to trying to encourage him to act in the right behavior, <laughs> um, you, you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, that that your dose of suffering was maybe excessive. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. Hopefully, I have learned these lessons with a, a least effective dose, and it, that's not what happened. Yeah, so. but I gotta say, it makes a hell of a story. You. I mean, a hell of a story. My last question for you: I want yeah. you to take a moment to address anyone listening to this with either CFS or any sort of chronic illness where they are at that point where they're losing hope and they don't feel like they have a future from someone who's lived it, who made it through. Yeah. What, what advice do you have? Well, I want to speak particularly to the people who are severely sick right now, because there are CFS people. I even have some here 
in my life, in, my, in this life that I have now, who kind of have a, a working minor degree of CFS in their life. And that's, that's hard. And, um, I believe that even that can, you can make progress against that, um, potentially, but I want to particularly address people who are severely ill, who maybe are, um, like in a place of hopelessness. I am so grateful that I hung in there because a, I discovered a thin, but life giving way of life in the midst of my illness, which was possible. Um, that when I was really sick, uh, and at times wanting to die because I was suffering, I still had something to live for, which was at times the hot shower I would take at the end of every day. You know, like I said, pain is a subjective experience, but so is joy. And so somebody who's in a bed all day and they get to that hot shower and they turn on that, that, that shower head and that wonderful relaxing jet of water you know i i had a shower chair you know um i would sit in that shower chair and i would just shower myself with hot water and it was it was the best moment of my day mm. and in a lot of ways it was um it was great and so i i don't want to pretend that it was something like as good as my life is now um but i do believe that you can find life in the most small places there's this great song by noah gunderson like uh um uh even in the smallest places a garden can grow is is this uh i think it's called the garden song it's literally called and noah gunderson's a seattle artist so i was you know that's like a little bit of a cool um connection but uh yeah i do believe like we can find life in the smallest of places and um so uh do the work and i uh we're rooting for you and um we it it's possible to discover corners and discover ways to achieve a higher quality of life with the hard work that that takes um if somebody is not sur uh surrounding you with affirmation and encouragement let that relationship go it's it's way better to have you want relationships that give you energy not that take it away um you do your best to eat well do your best to uh, um, work through uh, to develop emotional tool sets to navigate this thing as best as possible. Um, and yeah, we're rooting for you. And and I th I'm really grateful for boy that man. I almost said that's maybe the wrong way to say that. I I I'm almost grateful for uh, COVID because of the attention that long long haul COVID is giving to CFS people because it's like this invisible illness, which has been plaguing a very small, quiet, silenced group of people is, is in many ways, finally getting some much needed attention. Yeah. So, so true. And I, you yeah. know, I was thinking this earlier when you were talking about, um, losing your sense of identity because you're trapped in your room all day, right. yep. everyone in the world had a little taste of that during COVID, yep. you know, That's like right. everyone can, uh, like I was living that lifestyle for years before yep. COVID happened. And then everyone else started doing it. I was like, yeah, no, you gotta, you gotta figure out who you are, you know? Yep. And you, you, you have to put yourself through, through a crucible in your own mind and like grind yourself up and figure out when all this is done, like, who am I? If I can't do any of the things that, you know, I thought yep. of as my identity before, but yep. I'm still here. Who am I? What is my who identity? Am who am I? Yeah. Yeah. And, and to not settle with that new identity. 
life is full, full of potential with very little. I, I really, I really believe that. Wow. What a conversation. This has been incredible. I'm uh, absolutely thrilled that I get, that this was recorded and I get to share it. You know, <laughs> um, I'm thrilled that other people can hear this. Oh, uh, thank There's you. There's just something so tangible about this conversation. So practical, like an actual thing that you did that worked. I don't hear that all that often on this podcast yeah. Or, yeah. or as someone who's lived with a chronic illness for a long time, I haven't lived that, you know, something that tangible, that specific. And maybe I have, I'm just don't know it yet. Cause these things also take so much time I, mm. and I am on a bit of an upswing right now, but, Good. uh, but I, that's an incredible story to share. I, I really hope that this finds people with chronic fatigue who will have mm. something new to try. Um, mm. I, always, I always offer my guests a chance to plug something. I know that you have nothing to plug. You told me before we started, but you did mention that you might have something to plug in the future. And I'm just curious, what, what, what does that future hold for you? Well, I mean, right now I'm, I'm uh, really interested in, like I said, existential philosophy, existential theologies and spiritualities. I find that stuff really interesting. And so um, right now I'm just doing a lot of independent research, but I would be really excited to somehow someday produce content around that kind of stuff. You know, um, mm. one of the things that CFS really uh, uh, taught me is the value of the concrete, the value of the real. And um, uh, versus sort of the, uh, I think, so we live in this Western world that, that it's sort of like, if, if I, what's most important is how I consider myself. And I think that that has some real strengths at times because it allows us to have imagination as the lead, but there's drawbacks to this self idea of self-consideration as identity because it can take away from the truth is often we are how we are in the real world. And so if I am, I might think that I'm this extremely graceful person, but if I'm actually a jerk to everybody, <laughs> I'm actually a jerk. Right. So right, right. Uh, this focus on the real has been a huge, a huge boon for me. And, um, and it's a total fascination. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I would love to do that. Um, and create more content for that in the future. I'm not sure what that looks like. Um, so right now it's just in a kind of my head's kind of down just doing research, but um, I love that idea. Yeah. yeah. When you do let me know. Okay. Absolutely. Well, Appreciate Simon, I, I can't thank you enough for your time today. This was an incredible conversation. I mean, you're obviously, you, you've obviously lived through a lot, but you're also just like a natural storyteller. And you, Thanks. in that way, you remind me of Zach um oh yeah, yeah. well we <laughs> Zach and i were two birds of a feather we uh yeah very different people in some ways but man the crossover was 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 big yeah was, was absolutely powerful. and i'm i'm so grateful to zach for uh, getting us connected and making this happen because yeah. this was so special um oh, simon thanks. you did such an incredible job telling your story today thank you so so much for coming on the show yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity to um, to tell it. My heart just goes out to anybody who's suffering with CFS right now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. 
Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, and Justin Minnick. And our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash Major Pain podcast.